Hello and welcome to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. I'm Rosa Tor, content creator and researcher for Art on a Postcard. How are you all doing? I hope you're finding ways to stay productive or at the very least in high spirits during this scary time. We've got a lovely episode for you today to take your mind off the C word, not that one, the other one, with artist Peter Jones. Um, Peter contributed to Art on a Postcard last year. I've always found his work captivating and wonderfully strange. It's a lovely chat we have. Peter's depth of art history knowledge and rigorous artistic exploration was captivating. I hope this takes your mind away wherever it is that you're listening. If you've got any thoughts on today's episode or you'd like to share what you've been up to to stay creative during quarantine, then please do get in touch with me at rosa.tor at hepsitrust.org.uk. Enjoy and happy quarantine. Peter Jones was born in 1968 in Birmingham. After graduating in fine art at Reading University in 1992, he's lived and worked as an artist in London. In 1996, Peter was selected for the Whitechapel Open, which marked the beginning of a regular and continuing exhibition history. David Risley Gallery was the first to exhibit Peter's monkey paintings in the seminal 2004 non-human show alongside John Stezica and George Kondo. In 2006, Peter held his first solo shows at Fred in London and concurrently at the Sister Gallery in Leipzig. The monkey painting series shown at these two exhibitions confirmed Peter's reputation as an artist and earned him an enthusiastic cult following. Almost all of the vintage toy subjects of these still life paintings are collected by the artists for this purpose. The monkey paintings were followed by a group of lamb paintings, dog paintings and an ongoing series of various animal portraits, including bunnies and birds. These particular subjects acknowledge and communicate the traditional art historical symbolism of innocence, faithfulness and love. Hello, Peter. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing well, thank you, considering. I know, so uh, scary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is extraordinary, and um, it's it's very strange. It's all around us, and mm. by this time next week, you know, you will you will certainly know people who um, who who think they've got it. Yeah, definitely. I was on the bus yesterday and there were two men fighting and it's the first time I've seen something like this so far, but they were sort of saying, this guy's sick and he was going, no, you're sick. And then the bus driver got involved and was saying, who's sick on the bus needs to get off the bus. And it was like, oh my God, it's like people turning against each other and shaming each other. And, oh, it just makes the whole thing a lot more dark, really. It's it's it's, it's so strange because we live in, um, you know, with, a, with something like, the Black Death, you know, in the 14th century. Of course, everybody saw that through the prism of religion, yeah. and you know, and um, and doom, you know. Whereas, whereas now we we that is we live in it. It's not unreasonable for for people to to see it through the prism of science fiction yeah. and Hollywood, you yeah, know, yeah. Be- because it's that's how so many people relate to it. They go, oh, I know what this is about. I've seen it in films. Yeah. Um, so 
but people are reacting like it is a science fiction movie. But the, but it, it, I don't blame people for being um, at all for being confused yeah. and unsure. Exactly. I really don't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And how's it going? Um. At the studio, are all the artists still there working away, or have people... People, people, people are working here. Actually, there's, there's the sounds of um, the lift going. Now, I'm on the third floor, the top floor of, of this building. Yeah. And um, so there's a lift near me, um, and there was an artist who just came in I spoke to today, Hannah Brown, who yeah. does landscape painting. I just kind of have a key to my studio, and I, and I said to her, look, you know, you can... You know, so she'll keep an eye on the studio for me because when I go back down to St. Leonard's either today or tomorrow, I might not be back for like three or four months. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she was here working. And also something really interesting, um, uh, interesting because of context we're living in, was um, um, there was an artist here, an American artist called Beau Gabriel. Yeah. And he was, he had, planned an, an exhibition, this was ages ago, at White Post, the White Post Lane, at um, the Unit G Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the foyer of the White Post Lane. And the private view was yesterday. Of course it was oh. didn't happen. Yeah. What he did instead was he had the exhibition here in his studio. Right. Um, so there was it's included his studio, and he hung his paintings up, and he put it online saying he had um, a virtual, it was a virtual exhibition. Oh, kind brilliant. Of. And that's what people have been discussing right now on Instagram and all over um, the, um, London right this, right this week was people's exhibitions being cancelled. Yeah. And people saying, well, you'll just, I'll have, uh, you'll have a virtual exhibition. And this is really interesting. Yeah. Because that's really what Instagram is. So we, we know what virtual <laughs> exhibitions are. Right, yeah. Because because we um, we look at stuff online, you know, uh, uh, in the same way, with the same seriousness as if we are visiting an exhibition. Yeah. And so, so what was so strange was yesterday, um, I, he was here and I spoke to him, and he mentioned about the show that was cancelled, and um, and it was just going to be a virtual one. And I just didn't quite know what he meant by that. I didn't realise he'd actually hung the show. Yeah. So last night, I was walking down the corridor, and the door was open, and it was all dark, and I switched the light on, and there was this exhibition. Wow. And it was, the weirdest thing was, I just thought, oh, I'm going to just Instagram this. So I put it on my day. So I photographed it, put it on my day, and yeah. saying, like, an exclusive private view. I was the only one who saw it, the only person who physically saw it. Wow. And, and, and I just thought, it was so sad and shocking. I know. Um, so do you think so, this will uh, be the kind of what's going to happen on lockdown? Is this will the internet save the art world? I think what's interesting is it will really focus people. What um, in the flesh means, and um, and often people talk of painting saying, "I'd like to see these in the flesh." Mm. And um, and or you know that uh, there's also something else about this because um, I've already have heard people talk about pubs and restaurants closing and saying when they reopen, can you imagine everybody will be desperate to go to restaurants Crazy, and yeah. pubs 
but people were desperate to go to see art galleries as well. And so I think that during this lockdown, where people are having, um, looking at work online, people won't realise that actually, do you know what? It is worth making the effort to see that exhibition. Very true, yeah, yeah. You almost, it's like we've taken for granted the actual physical experience of standing in front of an artwork. And maybe that's what this time will reveal to us. There's also something, because I went, I came up on 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 Tuesday um, and I wanted to see this Titian exhibition. Yeah, did the you National get Gallery. It? I saw it and it opened on the Monday and it closed yesterday. Now, to be frank, in a way, it was slightly shocking that the National Gallery was open at all. I know, yeah. So I went there, and, um, and you know, it was... Obviously, it felt like, you know, Mars was about to attack, mm-hmm. and, you know, the ex- the gallery was half empty... Not half empty, it was more or less empty. I walked around the same field by myself, and I was nearly in tears thinking about how strange and sad it was yeah. that these paintings were all going to be sort of locked up for months possibly longer than that yeah. and so I saw the show and the whole the, it was just it's so extraordinary because the main the, the main event for me for the Titian show was the Rape of Europa yeah. by Titian on loan from Boston yeah. and I mean it is it's, it's reputation when it was sold to Isabella Gardner from the UK was that it was the, 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 the worst sort of most embarrassing loss of a painting from from Britain and that it was soon became the, the greatest old master in America kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, that's neither here nor there. You know, it's, it's just one of many great paintings. But it is, um, it was wonderful to see it there. Yeah. And... Um, in company with with the rest of the paintings, um, and and it's it's stunning. It's in fantastic condition, and and, and most editions are, you know, paintings on canvas have been rolled up and unrolled, so it's rare to find a titian perfect because, you know, like Raphael who painted on panel, you know, they're preserved better. But um, but anyway, it was it was it was it was fantastic to see it, yeah, and um, yeah. and. Um, and then I walked around the gallery, and there was, um, I always leave by the same way, which is through the Impressionist rooms, I think like you do or most people do when they visit the National Gallery. Yeah. And in the room with Vincent paintings, there was just two Japanese um, visitors um, mm-hmm. sitting on a bench um, in that room. Yeah. And, you know, there's a scrum around those paintings. And then also what's really sad is there was one, um, on the wall, there's a little plaque with a with um, a little illustration of the sunflowers, because that's on loan to Tokyo at the moment. Right. I don't know if you know, but the National Gallery, as part of the Olympic year, um, loaned 60 paintings to the right. Museum of Western Art in Tokyo. And on the day they arrived, the museum was shut. And the sunflowers, right, it's never left Europe before. And you can appreciate, like anybody who likes art, you know that the sunflowers, that particular version in the National Gallery, is like the Mona Lisa in Japan. Yeah, yeah. It's, he's the most loved artist. He, the Japanese people, I mean, Vincent's one of my favourite artists, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to completely, you know, bow down to the Japanese. when They, they, they trump my love for Vincent. 
Sons. You know, they love Vincent mm-hmm. more than any other Western artist. And so to see the Sunflowers, so exciting, so important, and such a generous, sort of reckless gift. I, I, I use that word carefully. It's a very generous <coughs> thing of the National Gallery to lend them the Sunflowers. And, um, and whilst it was on loan, the National Gallery then decided to extend it um, afterwards and then and, and then loan it to Australia as well. So the sunflower is meant to be out of this country for a year. Mm. Anyway, so I looked at that on the wall, the little sign saying it's on, it's currently on show, and I, and it's just again, it, I just felt something really symbolic yeah. about yeah. loss and quarantine and you know, um, and I that, that sort of thing. It was just very very symbolic that a picture has been sent all that way to be in quarantine and and the people there. Mm-hmm. know that this this magical object which is uh, uh, which has inspired you know the world for a hundred years it has is there just <laughs> within yeah. reach kind of thing but completely out of sight oh yeah it's... oh it's awful it's so tragic so i find that i found that really really sort of emotional so mm-hmm. the whole thing is the whole, the whole, this whole week is sort of, um, is, is very emotional, um, yeah. and strange, but, yeah. um... How do you think, um, for yourself and for artists that you've spoken to, how do you think you'll all manage with that, with the galleries closing, and what, what can, I guess, what can the public do to help artists that we want to support and things through this time where galleries closing and all of that might be a, be a problem for them um on instagram yesterday david burrows who's an artist um painter who i think he's based down actually down in east sussex um he posted a thing on instagram uh say, called an artist's pledge about you know we all need to sell work like you know cheaply and, and it was actually working for 200 pounds put sell work for 200 pounds and then once the artist themselves has like has sold a few things they pledged to buy work off each other right. you know so there's it's it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship um so that's artists mm. to artists yeah and um there is something so interesting because um i have a, a collection you know i think most artists have a collection and mm. you acquire your collection through um you know, often by exchange, um, gift, as well as purchase. There's obviously things I have to buy if I wanted to buy. Um, but you know, artists can exchange things with each other. Yeah. Um, and th- there's, a, there's a moment like this where, you're, because you'll think pe- this is a moment where, where people are reflecting and thinking about, um, you know, their possessions or what they own, what's necessary or what's not. You know, it's not. I don't think it's going to be a case where people are going to say, "Oh, can I um look? I've got a Warhol. I'll swap it for some toilet rolls." No. You know, um, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be that. It's kind of like a black comedy moment. No. But um, people will uh, um, will be able to focus on things that they really need. Exactly. Well, and really, thing. and really want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is what I was going to ask you as well, because with the social distancing and potential eventual break a lockdown 
Um, it, it might end up being a wonderful thing for some artists, I'm sure. Have you got any plans, sort of as an excuse to lock yourself away and paint and work on projects? Um, I will definitely. I have sketchbooks. So if I'm leaving my studio, um, uh, you know, so my studio's here in Hackney Wick in London, I'm going to go um, back home, which is in Hastings, and I will have um, sketchbooks. And um, so in the studio, I've always had this rule of, I, I, this is where all my painting is, all my painting is done. Yeah. Um, and I, com I completed a painting yesterday, um, and all my work is small. This is, this is a, it's like a 30 centimetre by 30 centimetre, mm. square canvas, linen canvas, and it's still life of, um, of, of, a, of a fan soft toy. This particular painting I did yesterday was of a, a, a sort of vintage spice alligator, hand mm -hmm. puppet. Mm -hmm. And it's just lying on this canvas, sort of, with natural light, like a spotlight on it, just sort of, and it's only looking at this, um, this hand puppet, the toy, um, with this strange head. Um, yeah. With, you know, with this, this, this like a kind of a, it's just a, it's a strange thing. But looking at it now, you, um, it, it looks like a severed hand or, you know, and the whole point of the, this hand puppet, it, it can only exist if, you know, it's got a hand, you know, it needs, it, and without it, it's suddenly dead. Um, um, and it's lying, it's also, this, this thing is so interesting, it's lying um, on the ground, um, and it's sort of sort of reminiscent. It, remind, it only reminds me when I was painting of Maurizio Catalan's mm. um, The Ninth Hour of mm. John Paul II, um, sort of like, you know, clinging to his crozier despite mm. being hit by a meteorite, which of course is an absolute masterpiece about faith and total, like, you know, again, like the puns of rock solid faith. Mm. Um, and so I, this this is a moment where where you know it, it's I don't think it's going to test people's faith in that sense, but I do think it will clarify in people's minds their priorities. Yeah, yeah. And I and I definitely definitely think that um, people will um, you know edit out things in their lives which they realise are unnecessary. Um, unnecessary travel um, is something that I'm I'm a big fan of unnecessary travel of, of, of not not traveling with you know unnecessarily mm. it, I think for, especially for artists um, you know it's important if you are going to travel it's it, there has to be some some spiritual reason you know it's why art trips um, are often I often describe them as like pilgrimages yeah. Uh, rather than holidays, and when I've travelled, um, mostly to Europe, to, you know, mostly to see museums. Of course, they're you know these are art trips. I would describe them as art trips, mm -hmm. and you know, and I would, I'd be ever so offended if someone said, "Like, where did you go on holiday?" And um, and of course, I can't think of anything more enjoyable and wonderful than going to it. Um, and of course, it's a holiday, but it, you know, if I didn't see museums and art, I, it would just be. I, I, I just think, what's the point of that? Yes. Yeah, so, have you always been very inspired by yes. the, the art history and the greats? And uh, uh, does does it inform your practice? Do you do you use any um, old techniques in your painting, or how, how um, does it inform Yes, you actually, there? I think 
I'm I'm one of those. It seems like having spoke to most artist friends over the years, um, I, it seems like I'm an, I'm one of those rare artists who was fascinated by art since you know very very young years before primary school at primary school. I loved art more than anything, but to me, um, it wasn't just you know just colouring in as I used to call it. Um, and drawing and painting, I was so interested in the history part, and my my interest was in a way parallel, and it's always been that. Right. Um, it's always been parallel. So very very when I was very very young, taken to the um, um, Birmingham Museum Art Gallery from you know that's my local mu- museum where I grew up. Yeah. Um, and Birmingham Museum was um, it had an art collection. Um, historic paintings and contemporary art, but it was also a natural history museum, and it had decorative art, and it had local history, and uh, so so the, the whole museum was like a complete, you know, Victorian municipal kind of collection. Mm. So the fine uh, the fine art collection was only part of it, and when I visited um, that museum, I would always see. I mean, I would always do the same route start with the paintings and I'd end up with a natural history, you know, there's stuffed animals and there were, mm. you know, there's an, there's an Egyptian collection as well. Okay. So it was, an, it was a proper good old fashioned museum. Um, and I don't think I ever went there only to look at paintings. It was, I just took it for granted. I would look at a painting and then look at, you know, um, these tableaus of, you know, of stuffed animals. When I was a child, of course, I didn't quite understand, you know, how they got there. Yeah. Um, um, you know, it was when it dawned on me that what taxidermy was. It was horrific, and um, but I, uh, I, I hadn't um, hadn't really thought about it um, when I was a child like that. Um, no, you don't. You sort of assume the best, really, don't you, when you're a child? Um, of course you do, and there's a, there's, a, there's the innocence, of course, and of course when you're, you're no longer innocent, that, that you you still are, you, you, we are still. Um, you know, there's still naivety to sort of get yeah. through, you know. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's also something else which is important. Um, Birmingham, like Manchester and Liverpool, the main sort of aspects of its collection, art collection, are its pre-Raphaelite paintings. So mm. the, the painting, the collection of pre-Raphaelites in Birmingham is, is in a way dominates that collection. And so when you... All the visitors there, all the residents of Birmingham, we, my goodness me, we all know what pre-Raphaelite art is. Mm. And, but what's so interesting, <coughs> for people who don't quite appreciate what this means, is that um, I grew up <coughs> knowing a lot more about pre-Raphaelite art than I, would have known, than I did about Impressionist art or modern art. And, and the, the, the status and, and the love that the city had for it, the pre-Raphaelite, was really quite overwhelming. So if I was interested in art that wasn't quite pre-Raphaelite. It was always tricky, you know, when, um, when you know, just saying, well, actually, I quite like this, and I quite like that. Mm. And um, and it was like, oh, you like the pre-Raphaelites, don't you? And it's, aren't they brilliant? Aren't they marvellous? Mm. And I was thinking, uh, yes, they are, but so is that Pizarro, and so is that Francis Bacon. Um, mm. And when I was very little, I, um, at home, we had... Um, probably some like Edwardian 
children's encyclopedias, mm. you know, or, you know, and so there was all these old encyclopedias, and it was all about, you know, the British Empire, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But um, the, um, the books that were about art, again, were from a, a kind of a 19th century Edwardian sort of taste. And, and that's how I really learned about um, the great art. You know, so it was, it was the it was the Giotto to Cezanne kind of yeah. um, you know story, um, with a big emphasis, of course, on like British eighteenth century painting, yeah. um, and but it was the old master. So what my my taste or my knowledge was definitely undoubtedly influenced by what I read. You know, so when I was first reading that, you know, Rembrandt is a very great painter and Velasquez is the greatest and you know, and Leonardo this and Michelangelo that. Yeah. I totally believed it. I completely believed it. I didn't doubt it. And so I grew up, you know, um, with the same attitude. It was like, I like Velasquez and I love Rembrandt and I love Denia. And I just grew up just taking that, you know, I just believed it. It's like faith. You know, I just totally believed it. Yeah. Um, and then, and then later... Later on, of course, when you go to, you're getting older, of course you're looking at everything else yeah, and, yeah. And, and then catching up with, um, you know, with art of your own time. Yeah. Um, so, um, and also, by the way, painting wasn't the most, not wasn't necessarily the most important thing for me. <clears throat> I suppose it's because looking at the museum, there was sculpture and decorative arts, and there was silver and furniture, and yeah, yeah. Well, you know there was occasion there was occasionally monumental sculpture. Yeah. Um, I want to say, yeah. um, I want to say, also it's very important. This is I was brought, born and brought um, um, Roman Catholic, right? And so, it, very much in the, I mean, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Warhol, of course, but Warhol was also brought up with this, you know, surrounded by images and. And the oh, idea of, you know, uh, that the that the idea of, um, the 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 idea that imagery you take again you take for granted, yeah. Yeah. and so I grew up with again at home, holy pictures on the wall, going to church and there's the piety stall, and it was when it's what I did my first collecting at the piety stall, um, which was after church. I was always allowed to sort of buy a little tiny picture, a little, a little holy picture. Mm. And these pictures were always really just head and shoulders, the shots of saints, you know, you know, with praying hands and halos, you know, looking up to heaven. Um, <clears throat> very much, you know, sort of, you know, a, a Guido Rene style, a sort of a 17th century sort of style, and all this, all this piety. Um, I also remember having children's books about... Um, saints the stories of saints yeah. so I sort of grew up with this with, with with stories of you know the early christian martyrs but these were illustrated with all the same sort of picture mm. um and that influence of of um of how i paint and choosing you know these single sort of images you know when i started the monk the, the monkey painting um Absolutely, self-consciously looking at um, the devotional images of um, of, of uh, just re re recalling those devotional, 17th century devotional images. Yeah, yeah. So the Catholic 
my Catholic um, upbringing is absolutely essential um, in looking at in looking at paintings and looking at yeah. um, old masters, yeah. and part partly is was lo- looking at religious paintings. But I now I look at this at the work, um, you know, the old masters, the early Italian Renaissance paintings, and I'm thinking. I'm just not interested in the subject anymore. So there's all those crucifixions and martyrdoms and things. I just think I just can't. That just that's Investing it's like it I've, 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 I've done I've done that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've I've yeah. done all that. Um, and even 17th century Spanish painting, which I love. Um, you know, there's a there's a time there. There's the the Zubran, um, you know, devotional um, Saint Francis. Um, I'm thinking, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic painting, fantastic painting. I'm just looking at the painting. I just have to look at the painting. And then I'm thinking, of course, of course the subject of the image is the painting. Mm. And there's moments where I think, I can't really see this. So in the end, I focus on details, like the still life details. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. And, you know, and then and this is how I think lots of artists w- will, you know, analyse and look at paintings. They kind of... They look at them in abstract, you know, they try to look at them as abstract yeah. and and you look for different things. But looking at looking at religious painting is take I just take it for granted. It's the imagery. It, it's a single imagery of really in a way of what I, I've always liked to do, a single object. This is something that I notice obviously in your paintings is having looked at them over the last couple of days, there does seem to be some sort of resonance in the current situation for vintage toys as isolated figures uh, in relation to the social distancing they seem to resonate with me um quite a lot right now um and, and as you said they usually are singular portraits does this allude to some theme of of loneliness or is that is and uh, is that in the work or is that something that is i'm perhaps reading now <laughs> due to the situation I, they, they they happen this is what's so interesting about history is where um, the, the relevance of work, mm. where when things when work resonates, as you say, at different times, um, all art uh, all art has to be relevant to the present day you're, you're in, yeah. and um, and what happens is um, people mistake um, some some people mistake art um, which isn't um, relevant anymore to being unfashionable um, because we know what unfashionable art is art is art where it's like it's not nobody wants it anymore but actually they don't want it at a particular period yeah um, and so sometimes I try to distinguish between between that but for my for my work in particular undoubtedly the, my work has been uh, um, about about anxiety mm. and um in a word, it's anxiety. Is, yeah. is 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 the main word. My um, when I first painted the um, the, mon- the monkeys, um, and I first discovered that as a subject. Yeah. Um, I mean, the monkeys as a subject is just classic. You know, it's just already made. And mm-hmm. and at the time, um, I was painting um, again single objects, still life, single single objects with a single light source. Yeah. Um, aesthetically, um, mm. w- one of the biggest influences, as- aesthetics, 
was actually just catalogue images in auction catalogues or museum books. Right. Museum guides, um, uh, 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 guides to DNA, for example, illustrated with objects. That these objects were always just put in a studio and photographed, you know, like, you know, with a single light source, and yeah. be, it'd just be beautiful. And so that, that, that aesthetically, that definitely influenced me, the way to light um, <coughs> the single objects. But at the time of the Mungus, I had been looking at different things. And um, and one of the things I'd been looking at were mummy animals from the British Museum. Yeah. And it was just looking at, being, again, fascinated by by these animals. And again, it might have been my fascination with animal taxidermy from as a child. But yeah. you looked at these mummy animals, and of course they're really popular. And now, of course, they're strange and extraordinary. But they also, there's a point, it struck me, they look like toys. They look like weird, strange, sort of tomb toys or something. Yeah. And um, and the cat mummies in particular used to have these funny faces painted on them. Mm. And, of course, we would look at them and go, oh, my God, isn't that great? Doesn't that look, look really strange and silly and, and yeah. funny and weird? Yeah. The point is, they're all of that. They are profound. They're extraordinary. They are, you know, uh, um, strangely attractive and and but and appealing weirdly strange you know they, mm. they of course they are but they're just you know these are artists and i just thought they might make a nice subject for a painting yeah so i uh, took i think i just got a postcard i started off with just a postcard of um one of the famous postcards of a, of a british museum mummy cat mm -hmm. and um painted it on on linen on a little linen canvas and as soon as I started drawing it out on the canvas and then painting it, I thought, of course it's it's linen. The object is linen. I'm painting it on a linen canvas. Yeah. And it somehow it, it just felt really appropriate on the canvas that I was painting. Yeah. And I thought, how interesting painting a linen object on this linen canvas. And I thought there was just it just sort of looked really I thought it looked um, it, it just it seemed really appropriate. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so then I thought of finding similar appropriate objects for a canvas. And um, and then I and I so I eventually came found some old antique moth-eaten um, toy monkeys yeah. from that. They're from, they're dated from about 1900. Again, these were little objects made of linen that was you know moth-eaten and threadbare. Yeah. And I just thought that will translate as a painting on on a on a on a nice and rough linen canvas. So I was thinking all the time of aesthetics right. and technical aesthetics, and and with only really painting the first monkey, which happened to be a really moth-eaten, scarred-faced monkey, mm. um, which that then it instantly reminded me of of. Um, of some pastel drawings by Henry Tonks of First World War soldiers with facial injuries. Yeah. That he had done these um, these portraits of these soldiers, which are horrific, of course, absolutely horrific. And um, and I just thought, this is a really damaged, you know, this, um, it's almost like I'm painting a portrait of someone with scar with a de deliberately chose an object whose face is scarred, and. Again, of course, these things are instantly, as soon as you think of that, you, you think, of course, this is important. This is, this, is, this is serious. This isn't fun. This isn't a joke. Um, 
Um, I also later found out, again, it just happened to, you know, uh, on a visit to one of one of the visits to the Imperial War Museum, uh, you know, that's an incredible collection of British paintings, yeah. was um, an that's extraordinary painting of um, of First World War soldiers who were recuperating from their plastic surgery operations from their faces, oh, right. and they and they were making toys. They were making soft toys. And this painting of them, of these of these soldiers sitting round a big bale of straw, stuffing stuffing it into wow. toys. And there was a little monkey sitting on the pile of straw, and I thought, how my how extraordinary that this has come full circle. That yeah. this that the, the, the monkeys have been making um, these toys. They've been making this sort of like now they sort of now this one I've got sort of resembles the person who probably made it. I know that sounds tenuous, um, and I also then realised, of course, that there was a tradition of soldiers, veterans, I think since the um, Georgian period, um, certainly Waterloo survivors and Crimean um, um, veterans, um, often sort of made a living on, in, on the streets of London by selling toys, by making toys door to door, selling toys. It, it, was, a, it was a strange occupation. I, it, it, I hadn't realised that it... it um, what was so surprising in terms of social history that um, women didn't make the majority of these toys. It was such an interesting thing that it was a male activity making toys. Um, yeah. You know, I suppose, you know, the, the tradition, I mean, we know about Pinocchio and, you know, I hadn't really thought about what, how, how, how interesting it was that that was a sort of, not just gender specific, but it was also like, it, it was really sort of, um, wounded um, veterans and made mm. toys and I just thought that was just so I, I couldn't ignore that and I just thought well, this makes them just seem so much more interesting yeah definitely um, and, and you, you mentioned as well the, the, the light, the use of shadows um, they're cast in your paintings in a really distinct way either projecting a shadow or of the toy or, or rendering the subject in, in a harsh contrast are you painting from a toy that's been set up under a light for you to then paint from? Or is it photographs yes. or from the imagination? Or how, how, how's that set up work? Um, I set it... In, in my studio, every, almost every painting, you'll see um, the light goes from right to left. Yeah. Because where I'm sitting, the wind, I have a window with the light coming in on the, from the right. right. And traditionally, apparently, in art, or the history of art, m most lighting apparently comes from left to right. And and I remember that being, reading that, it being pointed out to me. And then I noticed, and thought, my gosh, that's right. Most of these still lights are, are, are lit the other way. Um, I rarely have, have done it the opposite way. I don't know why it is, but it just it feels very uncomfortable. Right. Um, it, even when I'm looking at, checking a painting's composition, I turning it to a mirror when you just see the reflection of it so you can check things um mm. it doesn't seem right um the, the shadows are really important um um occasionally um the, the, you, you look for different forms and images in in shadows and the shadows themselves again they're, they're adding something um they're also symbolically, of course, you, you could say a shadow is, not symbolically, metaphorically or something, the shadow is 
another side of you or it's another part of you or another half of you. Occasionally you'll see shadows in old master paintings which are sort of vaguely, but we we think they're sort of quite carefully deliberate, but they're not accidental or or fortuitous. But you occasionally do see shadows which... um, which, which, which change the meaning of of um, which do change the meaning of the subject. Which is you see it in Caravaggio. You, you um, occasionally you would see it even in pre-Raphaelite paintings. You know where um, there's a famous painting by Holman Hunt of 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 a sort of a, a teenage Jesus in in his father's carpentry shop, sort of standing up and stretching, mm. um, and then. Mm. He's casting a shadow of like a crucifixion, and um, and it's sort of obvious. And you know, and I'm not going to say it's corny or anything, but there's 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 sort of a really obvious symbolism if you want to look for it or make it. But occasionally, when I'm setting the objects up and I'm doing shadows, I I, I will admit that I will always try to use the opportunity <laughs> when mm. I see it. Um, if a shadow happens to be very evocative or pertinent or just does something. But I would never point it out and I would leave it um, quite subtle. I would, I'd, I'd leave it quite subtle. I wouldn't point it out. But occasionally I'll do a shadow and it looks really obvious what it is. So of course I avoid that. The light, you know, so they have the light on the object. It's the one thing. But the, the alter ego to that is the shadow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's absolutely the relationships. Um, there is a relationship between between that, um, mm. which is why sometimes with those shadows, I do enjoy <laughs> exaggerating their, um, the 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 opacity or the depth of them. Right. Um, so occasionally, when I'm setting up an object and the shadow it casts is, you know, quite subtle, I do sometimes find myself sort of darkening it. Um, and it, again, it's just a goes way back to childhood when I used to do um, when I first discovered um, the joys of um, a 2B pencil mm. um, <laughs> yeah. you know and, and charcoal which were a revelation that was mm. um, you know when you you're, you're, you grow up only knowing what HB pencil and when someone tells you have you tried these pencils and, <laughs> and, and uh, you just can't believe that they can produce such you know rich rich tones mm. so i've i've been a fan of um that that, those, that kind of baroque um shadows mm. um, that sort of caravaggio baroque the shadows um of that kind of style um i really love it and um and i keep telling myself i have to sort of tone it down <laughs> i always turn but i often turn it up, turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> well i think they're wonderful and i really do think that um hearing about your your background and your process and everything and the relationship between the toys and you know referencing your childhood and going to those museums and seeing the stuffed animals and the religious art and you it's such a sort of coherent sort of trajectory to where to where your artwork is right now that it it's just so insightful to get to hear um where it's all been developed and it's just such wonderful work Yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's very, very, that's very, very kind. It is. Um, it's one thing I'd like to add as well is um, was w- was when I discovered um, 
you know, the First World War soldiers making toys. Mm. It sort of made me feel better um, because, you know, um, it, you know, to make it, to, for an artist to make art, any kind of art, you can't be too self-conscious, really, can you? Mm. And um, but there's definitely a, a slight, a slight um, wariness about sort of a grown man painting toys and uh, <laughs> you know and i i always say uh well they're not my toys and i said well you collect them i said i actually collect them just to paint them and um you know i don't yeah, you yeah. know I, and, and it's like I, you I, said I, as well the sort of the, the word of the paintings is the anxiety and it's the light and it's you know it, it's taking an object and it does as you say in some ways almost abstract out in a different kind of sense in a sense that it becomes about something different because of the way that you've composed them and the way that you've lit them, and it it, it alters the original intent for the the object. You know, the use becomes it's a different use for the to the same object, which is interesting as well. I I think there's uh, the, the, there's what's so strange about uh, um, it's the idea of um, portraiture because it, 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 the work is still light, but it's portraiture. It's mm. like I'm painting a portrait. Yeah. Um, it's something that I learned um, reading a, um, a Commons or as reading something about Vincent Chair and Pipe. Um, and it was, it was a comment about Vincent painting a portrait of of the chair, and um, and mm -hmm. and and in the same way extending that to. You know, this this painting isn't just you know a vase of flowers. It's like a portrait. Yeah. It's really it's like a portrait. He's trying to really understand and get. It. And I think, well, of course, these are things are symbolic self portraits. Everything sort of is. Yeah. But but um, but the idea of trying to capture a portrait as opposed to a likeness yeah. is so interesting. And could you explain the distinction between a likeness and a portrait? So with my early. Um, early monkey paintings, I was, I started off painting, trying to make them quite like. Yeah. And in the end, I realized that I actually can change them and do what I like to make them better portraits. And so I would change them quite a lot. The, uh, so the model, they did the models in the end didn't resemble them. Mm. Now this came, um, this became really important when, um, on the first occasions where I was, I was asked for commissions. And um, and I've only done I've actually only accepted or agreed to a few commissions, in, you know, in my life. And and I think the first one was, I said, you must understand. There's, there's been a misunderstanding. I said, um, you, do you want a likeness or a portrait? Right, right. <laughs> I said, do you want me to paint what I want to paint, or do you want me to paint something so it looks exactly like that? Yeah. And 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 I said, well, because really you need a photographer to do a portrait yeah. of this toy and when I discussed this it was so interesting and I said I'll tell you what I'll do I will try to make as close a likeness as I can but if I have to change things I just will <laughs> and what happened was I did um, I, I did a very a very good likeness and so I described this as being more like uh, this is almost like this was documentary, or it was illustration, because mm -hmm. illustration, or natural history illustration, I mean, where you're trying to get an exact, a close resemblance and likeness. You and it's not about you know, right? You go to you know, the National um, Natural History Museum, they 
commission you to sort of illustrate some flowers. No, they want you to, this is a, this is a very forensic scientific approach, it has mm. to be exact. Anyway, this does, this does relate to, to any artist's work, which, because of course that artist, even if you're doing an actual history illustration, you're going to give it your touch and your signature. Yeah. And so it's sometimes a fine line, um, but really it's not a fine line at all. Um, so, um, but, what, what, but what's slightly ironic is that with some of the commissions I've done, it has made me um, paint a toys um, much more realistically. Yeah. Um, and this is what's so strange that occasionally the commission um, I, I, I get, I find actually um, more inspiring than you might think, mm. um, and certainly more useful, um, yeah. because it actually has, it's a sort of a discipline. Yeah. And so so um, I look back at, when I compare older work, the older work is actually, it's sort of, it is, it's looser in attitude, and it's sort of freer um, with uh, creativity, I think. And the, but the more recent work, um, where I'm trying, where I'm actually, I'm trying to get the colours and the tones just really correct, sort of in a kind of a, a Freud way, how he would do it, um, where he just wants things really exact. Mm. It's, it's almost like I'm like toning down my imagination just to sort of be a bit more scientific. Mm. Right. But the effect is is paradoxically um, really quite creative, I think. Um, yeah. um, this is a strange thing for so... Um, I think paradox is the right word because, um, like I said, when I first did the first um, one or two commissions, I thought it, it did did actually change the way I looked at at, at the work um, and looked at how yeah. Um, yeah. how objects are. It's um, funny you mentioned paradox. I uh, was lucky enough to interview Patrick Hughes last week, and he speaks a lot about paradox in his work as well. And maybe there's a thing that within a paradox, within the sort of like puzzle and the confusion and the um, contradiction, it leaves a good place for artists to sit because then there's a lot of space for introspection and maybe the maybe the paradox is a great place for artists to dwell. Um, I can't disagree with that. Um, I have I had a I had a toy that was a gift several years ago of a of a mole. Um, and it was just so brilliant, and I just didn't know how to paint it, you know, because it was so great. But I had it in the studio for about three years mm. until I sort of like laid it down. It was standing up, and I just put it on its back, and I thought, "Oh my God, that's the painting!" <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then having seen it on its back, I stood it up again, and I thought, "I oh, will make a standing up painting too." So I did um, two mole paintings. Of, um, but it, that was after several years of owning it and thinking it didn't have any potential, yeah. and and then and then I did two two paintings of it, which I was I, I was just so surprised that it worked that they, it worked out. Um, there was a mole I did lying on his back, and he had these strange feet, and it was it just instantly reminded me of Mantegna's Dead Christ, right. you know, for, that foreshortened painting, the foreshortened Christ in the prayer in the lamp. Yeah. Um, and you know, so I sort of start off with there's like a little idea there, and I thought when you're drawing and painting, it, you know, the, for me, painting is a thinking process. So it's like 
it's all a thinking process when you're working. So, um, and then you know the work is finished. It's on the wall. You look at it, and and then things you, it, you know you think, oh, it's it's that. These things have come out. Of course, the influences and inspirations are in your head, and um, sometimes they're at the back of your head. You know, and occasionally they come around to the front, and you go, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> um, so, um, so I suppose the most most successful work um, are those which have, you know, various, you know, have like, you know, quite varied re- readings and um, and angles to look at. Wow, it's it's so, so as I said, it's just so so fascinating getting to hear about your process, and I can't wait now to go onto your site and your Instagram and have a have another look over them with all this in mind it's just it's such a thoughtful like you said painting is a is a thinking process and it's just wonderful how sort of thoughtful they are and and I suppose I'm looking forward to introspecting having a look at them Um, oh thank you that's very very kind very very flattering Um, um it's been absolutely lovely chatting with you Peter I can't thank you enough for dedicating time to chat today and uh, c- could you just let us know if the, where our listeners can find out more about your work, take a look at your work, what the website is, and all of that sort of stuff? My Instagram account is Peter Jones Art. It's one one word, and my my website is peterjonesart.org. Um, um, so Instagram is the place to go to. Brilliant. Um, to see to see to see work, um, and if I need to add anything at all, it, it, um, I, I usually post work with. Um, technical info, just to, you know, the, the, the size of the canvas or okay. and certainly the date yeah. of it. Yes, yeah, so it, uh, Instagram is the way, is the place to go. And yeah. right now, you know, that's where we're all meeting up. Yeah, I so. suspect um, there's been, for the past few years now, there's been so much talk about the negative effects of social media. And I think during this time, we might actually reap some benefits um, in terms of this is going to be where we're all socialising now on the digital platforms. Um, I, I agree. So social media suddenly becomes like this is this is a social sphere, and this is a, this is a this is a social space. Yeah, this is the pub or um, the youth club or the <laughs> wherever else we would usually go to um, socialise. Well, take care of yourself and your neighbours and everyone around you um, at this time. I will. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, and you know I love postcards. Yeah, um, well, we. You know, it was you, great hearing. If you came to my studio, you, I have, I collect postcards. I have a huge collection of mostly art postcards, but oh. I mean, I'm thousands and thousands and thousands. And so <laughs> I, um, so the 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 art on a postcard um, is, uh, I, I definitely have an affinity with that. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's um, like you said, it was great to hear you talking about the monkeys because the. The postcard you donated of the monkey was such a standout one in the exhibition. Um, last oh, thank year. you. It was yeah, really stunning. Um, we were so so pleased to um, include that in the in the exhibition. So thank you very much for that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. I'm really happy to have um, uh, uh, to have helped. I'm very proud actually of that. Yeah, um, I think it was yeah. the one um, last year. It was the one. I think I did one or two um, monkeys only on paper. Um, mm for the entire year so last year so that was a very rare one oh, lovely. Um, whoever's got that it's, that it's a it's a rare date yeah 1919 who would have known that the world was so different I know. you know 
in the year of perfect vision as well, 2020. I know. Oh, God, the irony. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but who knows? Who knows? We do not know the con- we do not know the full consequences, yeah. the, the social consequences. Yeah. But um, um, usually, when there's um, you know events, there's counter events, and, and which come back bigger and stronger and better. Yeah, um, definitely. That's such a nice way of seeing it. I hope that if anything, you know, we have to go into lockdown for a couple of months, I really hope that we all emerge from our houses with a new lease, uh, sense of, of life and vitality and um, ha- having had some calm and some downtime. It could have all, all do us some good, maybe, we'll hope. I hope so. I really hope so. I believe it. I believe so. Yeah. That, I believe to, it. I believe it will. Yeah, it's great to get some optimism, and also it's great to talk about something else with you as well today, because it's kind of all I've been thinking about. So it's um also a, a nice relief to talk about some art and remember what's important. So I know it seems it's like a long time ago that we could go to museums. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. It certainly it, it it will certainly make me think. Um, you know, you know, occasionally again going right back to that first subject. Um, yeah. You know, occasionally you're thinking, do I need to see that? Do I really need to see that on our exhibition? Yeah. And and it's like now, it's like you grab the opportunity when you, you know, you can, totally, you know, and yeah. if you really want to see something, go and see it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So definitely looking forward to get back to looking at art in the flesh again. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's been lovely. Okay, talking thank you, Rosa. Take care. Delighted to talk to you. Okay, yeah. take care and um, keep safe. Yes. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Art on a Podcast. To find out more about anything in today's episode, go to artonapostcard.com and be sure to follow us on all our social channels at Art on a Postcard. Goodbye.